The church at Smyrna suffered tremendous persecution, but not only did Jesus not promise to relieve their suffering, he actually told them that the persecutions were a good thing. What did that mean to that church at Smyrna, and what does it mean to us today? We'll talk about that on this week's episode of Revelation Unveiled on Faith by Reason. Welcome to Faith by Reason. The website behind it all is faithbyreason.net. There you will find hundreds of hours of study material, blogs, podcasts, and videos. And we are continuing our study of the book of Revelation, focusing on Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters to seven churches. These are seven letters dictated by Jesus himself to seven actual churches in Asia Minor, a modern-day Turkey. And in the last podcast, we looked at the letter to the church at Ephesus. That was a church that was strong on doctrine, but was falling short in the area of love. And this week, we will look at the church at Smyrna. That is the church that was suffering persecution. And let's just dive in by reading the passage. Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 8. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Well, the first thing we can see from this letter is that the idea of death is all over it. Death and persecution. So before we break down the contents of this letter, let's just look at the actual ancient city of Smyrna and the church of Smyrna. Smyrna was located a little bit above Ephesus, and like Ephesus, it was a very prosperous city for the same reason. It had a harbor, and any time you have a harbor, you are getting ships in through trade routes, and cities that are along trade routes become very wealthy because they benefit from the trade that is going through their city. Smyrna was also very prominent and very prosperous for another reason. One of their primary exports was myrrh. In fact, the word Smyrna is Greek for myrrh. It was a major export. And myrrh is a it's an embalming herb. It's an herb that has a very, very strong scent, a strong, pleasant scent, and it was used when you embalm dead bodies. And we know about myrrh from the nativity story. The The wise men gave three gifts. We know there weren't three wise men. There was a group of wise men. I hope you're, you're sophisticated enough to know that. But the group of wise men gave three gifts to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, the gold being the gift for a king, frankincense being the gift for a priest, and myrrh being a gift you give to someone who's going to die. So the wise men or the magi, which is what they should properly be called, knew about the um, aspects of Jesus as a, a king, a priest, and someone who was going to die. So these magi from Persia, or the, the Parthian Empire, actually had a better understanding of Jesus's message and mission than the Jews in Israel who didn't recognize their Messiah. Myrrh is also significant as it relates to the church at Smyrna. Remember I said that these letters have so many different levels of meaning. Everything about these letters, even though they're very short, they're very densely packed with information. And 
with uh, metaphors and pseudonyms. It's just very rich. Every aspect of them is intentional. And the reason that this one is intentional is because myrrh is is only valuable when it's crushed. The herb myrrh only releases its it, it, its scent, its value when it is crushed. And if you look at the church of Smyrna, you will see that that church being crushed is what caused it to actually be valuable. So let's talk really quickly about the church at Smyrna. The church was established by Paul during his third missionary journey. You can see that in, in Acts chapter 19. And although the um, city of Smyrna was rich, the church at Smyrna was actually quite poor. And the reason for this was its faithfulness. You see, because uh, Smyrna was such a prominent city, it had a very strong Roman influence. It was a, a Romans were, were there in mass, and it was, again, it was a very important city to Rome. And as such, the religion of Rome was very prominent there. Now, there's something called the Pax Romana, P-A-X, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And the way Rome kept its peace throughout the empire, throughout all the people that conquered, is because it, it allowed every culture that it, that it conquered to keep their various gods. So if you were a Greek, you could worship all of your Greek gods. If you were an Egyptian, you could worship your Egyptian gods. If you were a Syrian, you could worship your Syrian gods. The only thing that Rome asked is that you also add to your pantheon of gods the Roman Caesar, because they believed that the Caesar was God on earth. And so you'd have to burn a pinch of incense to Caesar, and you get a certificate stating that, and you were fine. And that was no problem for the pagans. They were just, you know, just no big deal adding another god to their pantheon. But it was a problem for the Christians because Christians are monotheistic. Yes, they believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they believe that that is all one God. So a faithful Christian would not give that pinch of incense to Caesar in Smyrna. So the church at Smyrna would not sacrifice that incense to Caesar. And because of that, they were lawbreakers and they were ostracized and they were condemned. They were brutalized and put in prison they were killed and they were just socially shunned they were considered fundamentalist christians who were intolerant of the beliefs of others therefore we shouldn't associate with them or do business with them it sounds a little familiar doesn't it sounds a little bit like what we're going through these days in in america but because of their faithfulness smyrna they were they were poor they were not able to do business but that crushing that oppression that they dealt with made them rich. And we're going to see that in, in a few minutes when we talk about, when we, when we break down the verses of, of what Jesus actually says to this church. All right, so let's just start breaking down these verses. Verse 8, to the angel, Angelos, the messenger of the church in Smyrna, write, these things say the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Now, remember, we've talked about before, in each one of these letters, Jesus gives a different title of himself that relates to the situation and the message that he wants to give to these to, to this church. And I love this uh, this title of Jesus for a couple reasons. Number one, it's just you know magnificent that he is the first and the last, and he did he died and came back to life. That's the whole basis of Christianity. But the other reason I love it is because this is a great verse to use on those people who come to your house on Saturday morning. You know when you're She's getting ready to start your day, getting ready to do some things with your family or to watch the game. And they come knocking on your door, spreading their cult literature. Yes, I'm talking about the Jehovah's Witnesses. This verse always trips them up because Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't believe in the divinity of Christ. They don't believe that Jesus was God, which means that Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christian. Sorry to burst your bubble if you have friends or family who are Jehovah's Witnesses. They're not Christian because you, you can't be a Christian if you don't believe that Jesus was God and died for your sins. They believe Jesus died and rose again, but they don't believe he was God. They believe he was the incarnation of the archangel Michael, which is ridiculous on so many levels. 
And when they knock on your door, if you are an evangelist and you want to save their souls, God bless you. And you try to, and I'm not one of those people. I just kind of want to get rid of them. But if you try to use some of the verses in the Bible that clearly point to the divinity of Jesus, they will have a defense for uh, against it. See, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they're very well trained in their apologetics, much better trained than most Christians, unfortunately. And they're cult leaders. And yes, they are a cult. They they meet every um, aspect of course, they meet every uh, qualification to be a cult. They were started by a charismatic leader who claims he got some a secret revelation from God that no one else got, which is again anti-biblical. God does not give secret revelations to anyone that He does not reveal in the Bible, and and of course this revelation contradicts the Bible. Um, you can't, you're not allowed to question this revelation. You're not allowed to question the leader. You are not allowed to associate with people who are not part of the cult. You are not allowed to leave the cult or you're not allowed to to assault if you leave the cult you're ostracized so basically they're a cult sorry again if that's offensive to you this isn't these are not my opinions these are just the truth they meet the definition of a cult and they are not christians anyway they will have an answer to you for any type of verse that you come up with to show the divinity of jesus except this one and i, I will link to a, a previous podcast where I go in depth on how to do this, but basically what you do is you show them all the verses in the Old Testament that talk about the title first and last as it relates to God the Father or Jehovah God as they call him. And you just go through each one of those verses and you read them and you say, you know, this thus saith the first and the last, so forth and so on. You say, who is that? And they'll say, well, that's Jehovah God. That's God the Father. You say, great. And you take them to each and every one of those verses and have them acknowledge that the, the title first and the last is a title of God the Father. And they will agree with this. You've established that. And then you end it by bringing them to this verse where it says, These thus say that uh, the first and the last who was dead and came to life. And you say, wait a minute. When did God the Father die and come back to life? You've already said that he's the first and the last. That that is his, a title of God the Father. When did he die and come back to life? Well, they have no answer to that. And you can they'll leave you alone for a while. I haven't had a Jehovah's Witness come to my door in six years. So anyway, <laughs> moving on. Verse 9. I know your works, tribulation and poverty but you are rich. What's interesting about these letters is that many of the churches, several of them have a misconception of their status. There are a couple churches who think they're doing really great, but aren't. And then there are a couple churches who don't think they're doing great, but actually are doing well. Smyrna being an example of the latter an example of the former being uh, the church of Sardis and the church at Laodicea. The church at Sardis thought they were a living church, but Jesus said they were dead. And the church of Laodicea was kind of the opposite of Smyrna in that they thought they were rich, but Jesus said they were actually poor and wretched spiritually. So Jesus says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. Now, he obviously does not mean rich physically. He doesn't mean uh, physical uh, material wealth. Because as we just saw, the church at Smyrna was quite poor. Jesus was speaking of them spiritual, spiritual, excuse me, speaking of them spiritually. Spiritually, the church at Smyrna was quite rich. Why? Because they were storing up treasures in heaven. And you have to realize that your spiritual wealth and prosperity is infinitely more important to God than your physical prosperity here on earth. For a very logical reason. How long are we on this earth? What, 70, 80 years if you're lucky? Well, that's that's how long we're here. How long will eternity last? Um, forever. So what's more important? 80 years maximum or eternity? Well, obviously, eternity is, is, is more important because once we are in eternity, we're living forever. These 70, 80 years we live on this earth are a speck. They're going to be barely a memory. So why would you focus on 
um, producing wealth here on earth if it's at the expense of your eternal wealth. It makes absolutely no sense. It would be like eating a poison donut now because the donut's delicious, but the poison is going to kill you in the long term. So you have, what, a, a couple of minutes of pleasure as you eat the poison donut, but then after you eat it, you, you are debilitated for the rest of your life? That makes no sense. And that's, that's what God is, is, is concerned about. And that is why many of us here on earth do not have the physical wealth and material prosperity that we want, that we've been praying to God for. We don't, we don't necessarily get healed from the diseases that we want to get healed from. Our families don't get healed. We don't, again, have material wealth. Because God knows that if he gave that to us, it would draw him away from us. And it is much more important that we be close to God and that we rack up spiritual wealth than physical wealth. That's not to say that there's anything wrong with being rich. There are plenty of people in the Bible who are wealthy. Abraham, Solomon. Well, Solomon's not a great example. Actually, I'll use him as the opposite example in a few minutes. But there are people in the New Testament and Old Testament who were very wealthy. You know, all the kings of Israel were wealthy. And as long as, as they were on God's side, God had no problem with them having wealth. But if he knew that having wealth would draw them away from the spiritual wealth, then he's not going to, he, he wouldn't give it to them. He's not going to give it to you. And that includes your physical health as well. If, if honestly, if being debilitated is going to make you lean more on God, then guess what? God's going to make sure that you stay debilitated. And with the church at Smyrna, their poverty allowed them to grow. They were crushed like the myrrh, but they were a great church spiritually. In fact, Smyrna is one of two churches along with Philadelphia about which Jesus has nothing negative to say. Jesus has nothing bad to say about this church. They're doing great, even though they are suffering physically. And as an example of the opposite end, you have the aforementioned Solomon. Solomon was arguably the richest man on earth in history. If you look at the wealth that Solomon had and just adjusted for inflation, so to speak, he had more wealth than anyone who's ever existed. And what happened? What did that wealth do? That wealth drove him away from God to the point at the end of his life, he, it, it, it's doubtful that Solomon even went to heaven. Solomon was wise. He had uh, he had uh, you know, plenty of, of, of wisdom and he had tons of money and it drew him away from God. And he's kind of an example of what God doesn't want. He would rather you be poor on earth and rich in heaven than rich on earth and poor in heaven. And how do we get that? That, uh, that those riches in heaven? Well, Jesus lays it out very clearly in the Beatitudes in uh, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. Why? Because God is a God of justice. Justice means that things have to be equaled out. If something is taken from you, you have to get it back. And the more it's taken from you, the more it, you have to you get back. So the more people abuse you for the sake of God. Now, if you're just a bad person, and you get abused. Well, you've, you've already suffered. You're, you already uh, received your justice there. If you're if you do something bad and something bad happens to you, well, that's just justice has been equaled out. But if you are a good person, i.e. a godly person, if you are doing the work of Jesus and you are unfairly harmed for it, well, you have to be paid back for that. The church at Smyrna was suffering persecution for the sake of Christ. They were having things taken from them unfairly, and so they have to be given that back. And that, and they, so that basically has to be given back to them in heaven. So everything that's taken from them on earth, they're going to get it back in heaven. So the more they suffer, the greater their wealth will be when they get to heaven. And as a side note, this is one of the reasons why I not only don't have a problem with people um, saying false things about me. Um, when I do the, my blogs, my podcast, my video, and I, and I get you know, comments from people that are really nasty, not only do I mind them, I appreciate them because every time somebody says something 
falsely against me for the sake of what I'm doing for Christ, they are giving me more reward in heaven. And when I put up a controversial post or blog, a podcast or video and something like, like for example, the, the series on evolution, um, I did a series showing how evolution is a ridiculous, ludicrous, unscientific, nonsense fairy tale. And I showed scientific reasons for it, by the way, you, indisputable scientific reasons why evolution is false. And all the atheists just jumped all over me and called me names and all this kind of stuff. And I just said, I said, thank you. You've just increased my reward in heaven. And when I do something controversial that Christians don't like, for example, some of the stuff I put out on a supernatural worldview with Genesis chapter six and the Nephilim and the sons of God, which are angels having intercourse with women. Oh man, all Christians came at me and they just called me heretic and false prophet and all that kind of stuff. And I said, you know what? Thank you. You just increased my reward in heaven because you reviled me and said false things against me for the sake of what I'm doing for Christ. You just increased my reward in heaven. Unfortunately, you increased it at your expense because when you do something bad, the reward I'm getting is a reward taken from you. So when you say bad things about me, it's fine. But just know that I'm getting a piece of your reward. You're losing and, and I'm gaining. So that's something to keep in mind. So keep the negative comments coming. You're just re increasing my reward in heaven. Okay, let's keep on with the second part of verse 9. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Whoa, okay, what's he talking about here? Who are these people who say they are Jews and are not or are of a synagogue of Satan? Well, this is a topic that we need to spend some time on, and we need to be very careful about it, because we have to be very careful about what we say about um, Jews because God is jealous for his people. He makes that very clear throughout what we call the Old Testament. But these people are claim that they're, that they're Jews and are not. We need to figure out who they are because we don't know much about them except what it says here. Um, so in this uh, episode, I'm going to just give a, a who I think these people are in a contemporary historic sense with the Church of Smyrna. And after the church at Philadelphia, I'm going to do a whole series on who these people might be historically because remember, these these uh, seven letters are also prophetic. They lay out the entire history of the church the last 2,000 years. And these Jews who say they are Jews and are not, I mean, these people who say they are Jews and are not, uh, they, we find them again in, at the Church of Philadelphia. They're, they're, um, you know, giving the, they're harassing the Church of Philadelphia. So we're going to talk about them then. But for now, I believe that in the first century, these Jews who say they are not, they were Edomites. Who are Edomites? Edomites are the descendants of Esau. We know Esau of the Jacob and Esau fame. They were the two sons, the two twin sons of the patriarch Isaac. Esau came out first, so he was the firstborn. He had the birthright. He was supposed to be, just by birthright, he was supposed to be the person through whom God's nation came. I'll say the nation of Israel, but Israel was the name of Jacob. But Esau was supposed to be, by his birthright, the person through whom God created his nation. However, we know Esau sold his birthright to his brother Jacob for essentially a bowl of soup, which means he just didn't care about uh, being the progenitor of God's nation. And then later, uh, Jacob tricked him uh, or, or basically robbed him of his blessing. Now, the blessing, the birthright is the right to be the progenitor of God's nation. The blessing that comes from, the, that comes from his father Isaac was material stuff. And that's what Esau wanted. Esau wanted the material blessing, the prosperity, the physical prosperity, you can, you can uh, again, juxtapose this with the people of Smyrna who um, were, were rich in spiritual, spiritually rich, but um, uh, um, materially poor. Esau wanted the material wealth. So he didn't care about the birthright, but he wanted the, the, um, the physical blessing. 
Jacob cheated him out of that, and they became they were enemies after that, and that that animosity spread throughout their descendants. So the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, became the, were, were the uh, centuries old ancient enemy of the Israelites. There was just a ton of animosity and violence against them for for many centuries. So flash forward to the time of the end of the Greek Empire. This was around about around two hundred ish. Uh, BC, actually 167 BC to be precise. This was a time of the Maccabean Revolt. So just to set the stage, again, this was the end of the Greek Empire. The Greek Empire was declining. It had been split into four different empires, and they were on the way out. But the part of the empire that ruled over Israel at the time was headed up by a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. We want to talk about this guy quite a bit more down the road because he is a, a model of the Antichrist. He was actually the, the precursor of the Antichrist. Anyway, he is he was completely he was a madman, among other things. And one of the things he did, be he hated the Jews in Israel. So he went into the Jewish temple, into the Holy of Holies, and he desecrated it. He slaughtered a pig. And of course, pigs are not kosher. He slaughtered a pig on the altar and he set up a statue of the Greek god uh, Zeus. And this abomination so riled up the people of Israel that they, it was a call to arms to them under the leaders that were called the Maccabees, which is, why, which is why it's called the Maccabean Revolt. And they overthrew the Greek Empire at the time. Again, the empire was declining. So they, they rose up and overthrew the, the yoke of the Greek Empire and they cleansed the temple. And the celebration of the cleansing of the temple is the holiday that Jews celebrate to this day called Hanukkah. Anyway, as part of their taking back their land, their land of Israel, they also finally and definitively conquered they're Edomites. The Edomites were their physical neighbors. They were on the other side of the of the Dead Sea. They were um, uh, east of Israel. They conquered the Edomites and they forced the Edomites under threat of death to convert to Judaism. Now, this was a forced conversion. It's never, it's, it's, you know, it's never genuine, obviously. They didn't become, um, they didn't start practicing Judaism because they decided they wanted to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, they did because otherwise they would be killed. Because the Edomites were pagans, they they worshipped pagan gods, and they, so they pretended to be Jews in order to have their lives and not be killed. So it was a forced conversion. They had to pretend to be Jews. Now the the Israelites' newly found freedom didn't last long because right after that, right after this, not shortly after this, less than fifty years, the Roman Empire was rising to power, and they came in and they swept through and reconquered the land. So now Israel was under Roman rule. Israel did not like being under Roman rule, so they would rebel often, and Rome would have to send um, armies and legions to put down the revolts. Now, Israel was not a main part of the Roman Empire. They were on the outskirts of the empire. Uh, Israel was basically a buffer state between the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire to the east. Remember, the Parthian Empire, by the way, is where the Magi, the wise men, came from. So when the wise men came... Um, they, it looked like a border incursion. It, was a, it wasn't just three wise men. It was a bunch of them. There were um, a, an entire military contingent that came with them. So because Israel was was a, kind of the backwater of the Roman Empire, the Rome just didn't like sending their troops there all the time to put them down. So the Romans decided they were going to put a king over Israel that was loyal to Rome, but was also quote-unquote Jewish, and they decided to put an Edomite or an Idiomaean, same thing, Edomite, Edomaean, Edomaean is, is basically the same thing, because the Edomites were loyal to Rome, unlike Israel. So the Romans thought they were Jews because they were forced to practice Judaism, and they put 
a king over the Jews called Herod. You remember King Herod from during the time of Jesus' birth. He was the one, but he was he was not a Jew. He was an idiot man. And the, um, you remember the wise men, when they came, when the Magi came, they went to Herod and they first, which means, which kind of proves that they were not just a, a small contingent. They were a large contingent. Herod was afraid of them. You could tell that from the story. And they asked Herod, where is he who was born king of the Jews? That was actually an insult to Herod because Herod was not born a Jew. He was an, he was an Edomite. So when they said, where is he? They said, yeah, I know you're king of the Jews under Rome, but we want the, we're looking for the kid who was born king of the Jews. So they basically walked into the king's chamber and insulted him, which is a fascinating story. But let's keep going. So the Edomites um, were ostensibly Jews, but they continued to worship their paganism. They just you know, changed all the names to Jewish names uh, into, uh, and had Jewish trappings in their religion, but they were still pagans. So I believe that these... Edomites met all the qualifications for the people that Jesus is talking about. Because in order to in order to meet the qualifications, you have to there, there are four things you have to be. First of all, you have to claim to be a Jew, number one. Number two, you have to not be a Jew, even though you claim you are. Number three, you have to be a synagogue of Satan. What that basically means is that you are practicing a, a form of Judaism that is that is in fact Satanism, but it looks like Judaism. And four, you have to be giving problems to the Christians. Edomites were doing all these things. They were not Jews. They were Edomites. They were claiming to be Jews under, you know, the forced Judaism. They were still pagans. They, they were practicing a Judaism, a form of Judaism that was actually satanic. So they were synagogue of Satan. And because they were loyal to Rome, they would give Christians problems because the Christians were not loyal to Rome. So I believe that Jesus here is talking about Edomites. Now, if you have a different opinion, please let me know. I'm, I'm open to hearing it. But they're the only ones who meet all the qualifications. There's some folks who will say that Jesus is talking about Jews who are practicing the Kabbalah and Kabbalah is an ancient form of Jewish mysticism that began in Babylon and it's not true Judaism. So they figured that this is who Jesus is talking about, but they don't meet all the qualifications. Yes, they were, they, they gave these, the, the Kabbalists gave Christians problems. They were also um, of the synagogue of Satan. They were practicing a form of Judaism that was actually satanic. Kabbalism is, is mysticism is, is satanic. However, they were actually Jews. So Jesus wouldn't say they were Jews and, and, and Jesus wouldn't say they called themselves Jews and while not being Jews, they were actually physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they, they were genetic Jews. They just weren't practicing proper Judaism. And the counter argument is, well, in order to be truly a Jew, you have to be practicing true Judaism. That's, I think you're kind of splitting hairs there. But either one of those are possibilities, but I, I'm going to lean on the, the Edomite version. All right, let's move on. Verse 10, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Notice here that Jesus does not promise to relieve their suffering. He doesn't say that if you believe in me, I'm going to stop the suffering and I, I will take that away from you. No, what Jesus essentially says, you know, you, don't be afraid. You're still going to suffer. Just hang in there. That, that's his message to them. Your suffering will not be relieved. You're going to continue to suffer for my sake. Why? Because again, it's, it's much, it, as they continue to suffer, they're continuing to rack up a reward in heaven. They are getting richer and richer. And it's terrible and that they have to, have to suffer. And it's hurtful, but they are getting their reward in heaven. And you might say, why would Jesus, who loves this church, why would he allow them to continue to suffer? You have to look at it like when, when you're exercising. 
when you first start exercising, how does it feel? It's painful. It hurts. You're tearing down muscle and, and building it back up. But that short amount of pain is going to reap you so many rewards down the road. You're going to be fit. You're going to feel better about yourself. You're going to be healthier. You're going to live a longer, healthier life. So that pain you feel during when you begin to exercise, which may last for a few weeks, is it will pale in comparison to a lifestyle of health. So Jesus is basically saying, I know you're suffering and I, it hurts. It hurts Jesus. Jesus doesn't enjoy seeing them suffer. But what he knows is that this short period of suffering that they're enduring on this earth is going to be so is going to result in such a magnificent reward for them in heaven. So he's not going to stop it because if he stopped their reward, he'd basically say, okay, now I'm stopping your, I'm sorry, excuse me. If he stopped their suffering, he would basically be saying, okay, I'm stopping your reward. I'm cutting your reward off right here. And Jesus would not do that. That would be unjust and ungodly. And Jesus would obviously never do that. He just tells him, you know, and moving on, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Just hang in there and be faithful. Now let's back up a little bit. Um, the part where it says, indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Now, being thrown into prison is understandable. That was just part of the punishment for not worshiping Caesar. But it says you will have tribulation 10 days. This is one that's tough to understand. What does tribulation for 10 days mean? Is it 10 literal days? That would that doesn't really fit anywhere. Um, it, it may, and it may be that there was just something that would happen to them for 10 literal days. They would have tribulation. Uh, or within tribulation just means uh, trial and suffering. We're not referring to the period of time we call the the tribulation a seven year um, period um, of at, at the end times. He just means you're going to have trouble for ten days, and maybe it's just ten days of literal trouble that the church of Smyrna would have for some reason. There's, he doesn't go into detail about it. Some have tried to say that these ten days refer to ten eras of persecution that the church would um, suffer, and I've heard that, and people have tried to outline what these ten periods of persecution were. And none of them really fit cleanly into history, so I, I, it's hard to, to regard that. And there are others who say that these 10 days represent 10 Roman Empire emperors who persecuted the church. And there were, we'll talk about them in a, in a few minutes, there were 10 uh, emperors that um, caused uh, great persecution in the church uh, during the persecution age. But, you know, why would he refer to them as days? Why wouldn't he just say there will be 10 kings who would persecute you? So it doesn't cleanly fit. So the bottom line is, I am not entirely sure what the tribulation for 10 days actually means. And so if you have any ideas that are biblically based, uh, let me know. Uh, verse 11, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The second death. There, there are two deaths and two births that we will all, ex we will experience to some degree as, as human beings. You have, you have to, there are, again, two deaths, two births, and you will experience three of them. And if you are born once, you're going to die twice. Meaning if you were just born in the flesh, like you are when you come out of your mother's womb and you don't become a part of, of, of the congregation of God, you're going to die twice. You're going to suffer your physical death of whatever old age disease you're going to die then. And then you will suffer the second death, which is hell. On the other hand, if you're born twice, if you're born a flesh from your mother's womb and then you are born again, as a new believer baptized by the Holy Spirit, if you're born twice, you're only going to die once. You will suffer your physical death, but then you will have life eternal. So you basically, if you're born twice, you die once. If you're born once, you die twice. And he's telling the church, those who overcome will not be hurt by that second death, even though they will experience probably a brutal death. The church of Samaritan will experience a brutal death or did experience a brutal death here on earth. Okay, let's wrap this up by talking about how the, this letter 
affects the the other levels of of um, meaning in these in the seven letters of seven churches. There's a historic um, level which we just talked about with the actual church of Samaria. Then there is the personal and ecclesiastical or church level of persecution. Well, yes, the church has suffered persecution of some degree individually and as a church body throughout history. Um, even today, that's happening. Again, we don't suffer physical uh, persecution here in the West, but there are areas in Indonesia that the church is suffering, suffering absolute persecution. Um, if you're in a, a predominantly Muslim country, it is illegal to be a Christian. You will suffer persecution and be ostracized and not be able to do business. If you are in China, you're going to suffer persecution. In certain parts of Russia, the church will, is suffering persecution. In areas of Africa, there's severe persecution for Christians. So it's the church has been and will continue to be persecuted physically, but they are getting great reward in heaven because they are being persecuted for the sake of God, for Jesus. So even though their suffering may not be relieved on earth, they are going to have massive, massive wealth in heaven. Now, here in the West, again, we're, we're fortunate that we aren't suffering physical persecution, at least not yet. I mean, I think we're getting to the point it's going to happen. Um, if you look at the deterioration of the cultural relationship between the world and the church here in America and in other Western parts of the world, it's, it's getting progressively worse to the point where I think probably not in my lifetime, but probably in the lifetime of my of my sons, I think Christianity will be completely outlawed and you and there will be physical persecution. And it's happened quickly. Right now, as I said, we aren't suffering physical persecution. But in my lifetime, when I was young, it, it's so different now. When I was young, being in a church, a church that was considered a positive place, it was considered a place that you would come for refuge and for comfort and to learn about the love of Jesus. It was, it was a positive place. Even if you weren't a believer, you still had some respect and regard for the institution of the church. Pastors were considered people he would go to in times of trouble. When, again, if you were a, a an unbeliever, when something bad would happen, you would still want to, you probably would, you would migrate to a church just to hear a positive, uplifting message. That's what you, that's where you would go. The pastor was considered the pillar of the community. All communities were built around churches and the church being the center. That is not the case anymore. Now, if you are a, a, a pastor, you are what you're considered a, a leader of a bunch of intolerant, bigoted, racist, sexist, homophobic, stupid people who believe in their magic man in the sky instead of the proven science of evolution. And of course, it is not proven and it's not science. Revolution, evolution is ridiculous. Again, I spent uh, three entire podcasts just showing how evolution is not only ridiculous scientifically, but culturally, it leads to a culture of death and oppression and persecution. So well, feel free to go there and, and listen to those podcasts. And once you listen to them, you will you will see why evolution is such a horrible theory and not just from a mental standpoint, but also from a cultural standpoint. But anyway, um, we are suffering uh, cultural persecution as Christians. Again, it used to be that if you wanted to run for office, if you wanted to be considered, again, a prominent person in your community, you had to at least pretend that you were a church going person. Every president up until very recently had claimed Christianity, whether they were or not. I believe that most presidents probably weren't um, Christian. I, you know, just looking at my lifetime, Reagan, I mean, he claimed to be a Christian. I, I don't know. You know, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Uh, the first Bush, he, you know, nominally claimed to be Christian, but he didn't live like one. Clinton, well, could grieve the Clintons are the most corrupt politicians I've ever seen. I've, I've ever noted probably in, in all of American history. But they claim to be Christians. 
you know, George W. Bush also claimed Christianity, although his actions didn't really meet it. Um, Obama, <laughs> good grief, he was a part of a church that preached more social justice and actual Christianity. But anyway, they, they at least had to, and Trump, I don't, Trump's clearly not a Christian, which fine, you don't have to be a Christian in order, in order to be the president. Um, I, it's more important that you uphold our constitution, which very few of them do very well. The point is that in the past, you at least had to give lip service to being a Christian in order to be acceptable. Now, it doesn't, you don't have to be a, at all. And no one, no one cares whether or not you're a Christian. It's not even considered a positive thing. In fact, we, we, if you look at George W. Bush, he claimed to be a Christian. And that was one of the things that people criticized him most for. The fact that he said he prays to God before he makes decisions. People lost their minds on the left about that. So it's, it's, we've gone a complete 180 to where when I was a child, being a Christian was a wonderful, positive thing that people acknowledge. Now it's the opposite. If you are a Christian, then you are considered the, one of the worst members of society. And it's only the Christian religion. Christian Christianity is the only, and it's not a religion, we're a fellowship, but Christianity is the only faith system that is, that is not allowed in the marketplace of ideas. If you're a Muslim, you're fine. You can, you'll read stories all the time about how Islam is studied in, in public schools and they even do mock Islamic prayers. But if you want, if you, if you want to pray in schools, you can forget about it. You can't do it. If you want to, if, if you, if your kid is a part of a sports team and they want to have a prayer before or after the game, you can have the ACLU all over you. So we've completely done a 180 to the point where we are socially ostracized and considered bad people because we're Christians. Whereas it used to be, we're considered good people because we're Christians. I told a story a couple of podcasts ago how I was talking with uh, one of my neighbors and just, just talking about just the state of the world and things like that. And she said, yeah, you know, and all these Christians and fundamentalists are just ruining everything. And I said, look, excuse me, I'm a Christian. And she was taken aback and said, really, you're a Christian, but you, you seem so nice and so smart because her impression of Christianity from our culture is that if you're, if you're a Christian, you're stupid and you're mean and intolerant. So, and, and I think it's just only going to get worse. You, and, and the signs are there. Not too long ago, there was a, a, the mayor of, um, I think it was Houston. She was, she's a lesbian. I don't know if she's still the mayor. I don't keep track of Houston politics. But she demanded that all preachers, all pastors with churches who, who were getting uh, tax-exempt status submit their messages to her office before they could preach them on Sundays. Do you, do you see how draconian and, and fascist that is. Now it didn't work because we're not quite to the point where um, that, that can happen here in this country. But the fact that she felt comfortable enough to even introduce the idea tells you that it's going to happen. We are going to get to the point where parts of the Bible are outlawed. In Canada, there was a big um, uproar uh, maybe 10 or so years ago about the chapters in Leviticus, in the book of Leviticus, that talk against homosexuality, that saying homosexuality is an abomination. And you, a pastor was actually, I believe, uh, either jailed or arrested at, at the very least for preaching from the book of Leviticus. It would not surprise me in our culture if we get to the point very soon within my lifetime where there will be certain parts of the Bible that you are not allowed to publicly speak on. I think Leviticus will be one of them where it, where it talks clearly against homosexuality. There'll be parts of the book of Romans that you won't be able to talk about where, where Paul talks about, especially Romans chapter one, where, where Paul clearly speaks against homosexuality because that's the you know homosexuals are untouchable you cannot say anything bad about a homosexual 
Um, you can say anything you want about a Christian, but not, not any gay and extra points. If you're a transgender, you really can't say anything about that. You can use any bathroom you feel like using whatever you feel like that day. You can, if you feel like a woman, use a woman's bathroom. If you feel like a man, use a men's bathroom and you can't say anything against it or you will be socially and ostracized. It's going to get to the point where parts of the Bible will become outlawed and then Christianity will, and I, I think that part will happen in my lifetime. And then I think in the lifetime of my sons, if we, if the world is still around that long. I think Christianity itself, as we know it, will be outlawed. There may be some form of Christianity that's superficial, but you know, like the, the Joel Osteen version of Christianity, where it's just about saying positive messages and self-help. But true, uh, genuine Bible-based Christianity, I believe, will be outlawed, and we will be no different than the nations who are suffering persecution right now. I know that sounds depressing, and I'm not trying to get you down. Actually, I want you to think like the church at Smyrna. This is the whole point of this letter. Jesus said, rejoice when this happens. Don't be sad when the culture turns against you. Rejoice because every time these people are doing, uh, saying bad things about you, saying false things about you, reviling you and persecuting you and saying all manner of evil against you falsely for God's sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great will be our reward in heaven. So every time you turn on a TV show or watch a movie and you see the, the requisite Christian bashing, because again, I think it is, Pretty much, I think it's in a contract of every movie and every TV show that you have to have at least two things. You have to have at least one gay character and bonus points if there's transgen transgender in your TV show or movie. And number two, you have to say something bad about Christians or Christianity. It, I, I, I'll be watching a TV show that has nothing to do with anything religious. And then all out of the blue, they'll say something bad about Christians or, or people who have a Christian worldview. And I'm like, where did that come from? This show isn't even about religion. Why are they bashing Christians? It's just what they do, but rejoice and be exceedingly glad because they have just re re increased your reward in heaven. Okay, and let's end with the prophetic um, standpoint. Each one of these letters from um, Ephesus all the way to Laodicea, I believe that they lay out the history of the church in advance. So the first letter to the first church, Ephesus, would represent the apostolic period, the first couple hundred years of, of Christianity where doctrine was very strong because you had, this has happened during the lifetime of the apostles we, the, and the people and the first generation, the first and second generation of Christians who learned at the feet of the apostles. So they were very strong in doctrine, but they were not strong in love, unfortunately. So that's the first couple hundred years. And there's some overlap here. So this, this next period that would be the period of, of Smyrna, which is a period of persecution. And that would last from about um, the second part of the first, but most of the second century all the way to the, the, the 3rd century, around 300, um, 300 plus AD, when the Romans began to viciously persecute the church. It began, to a degree, under the Roman Emperor Nero in AD 67. He, was, he started the first persecution of Christians, and basically to, to, he blamed them for his own misdeeds. He was responsible for the burning of Rome because he was just derelict in his duty, and he had... The, the city was was built out of wood. There's like you know lots of wood everywhere. All the the buildings were built of woods, of, of wood. And through his carelessness, a great fire started and it burned most of Rome. And he blamed it on the Christians. And so he began to deflect from himself. He began the first persecution. The second persecution happened under uh, uh, Domitian, and that that persecution actually included. Well, well, first of all, Nero's persecution um, resulted in the uh, per, um, executions of Peter and Paul. The second persecution under Domitian, Domitian, excuse me, is where uh, the Apostle John was sent to Patmos. So John was writing under 
uh, Domitian during during this period. Then there was um, a period of time where Christians were tolerated. Then you had a, another Roman emperor come around named Trajan in, in AD 108. He began the third major persecution of Christians. Then the next couple emperors after him, they were kind of indifferent to Christians. But then you have the fourth persecution, which happened under Marcus Aurelius in 162 AD. And if you're a movie buff, you know about Marcus Aurelius from the movie Gladiator, which started uh, starred uh, Russell Crowe, actually a really good movie. And he, the Gladiator was a, a big proponent of Marcus Aurelius. Unfortunately, Marcus Aurelius was also a major persecutor of the church. The, there was a fifth persecution that started with Severus in AD 192. The sixth persecution happened under uh, Maximus in uh, 235 and that happened for a while he was succeeded by um, a, a woman in named Philip who was actually tried to reverse things he was actually good to the church and he appreciated Christians but that didn't last very long because um, in 249 AD violent persecutions started breaking out again and there, there was a seventh major, major persecution under uh, Decius in AD, part of the AD 249 he was the one who started the at the Alexandrian persecution that destroyed the church at Alexandria in Egypt. Then there was the eighth persecution under Valerian, the Roman Empire, uh, Roman Emperor Valerian in AD 257. Then there was the uh, the ninth persecution under Aurelian in 274 AD. And the final first persecution, which was actually the worst, was under a emperor named Diocletian in AD 303. This is the persecution that almost broke the church because this is the persecution that actually drove Christians underground. You, the persecution was so bad that you could not even show your face as a Christian without being killed. There were rewards given to civilians who would turn Christians in and persecute them. If you brought the dead body of a Christian to um, a Roman outpost, you would get material reward. So the entire world was actively persecuting Christians and were subsidized for it. So this is the worst of all the persecutions under Diocletian. But here's the thing about these persecutions. Every time the Christian church was persecuted, it would grow. Christians were driven underground, Christianity would grow. More and more Christians would come out of this because why they had nothing to rely on except God. Because they had nothing to rely on except God, they became more and more faithful and that faith just sprouted more and more Christians. There's a saying that uh, the the growth of Christianity was watered with the blood of the martyrs. You know, it's kind of a morbid saying. Nevertheless, it was true. The more Satan persecuted the church, the more it grew. So Satan's idea, his his plan to destroy the church physically failed enormously. Even under that last persecution of Diocletian, the church just grew massively in numbers. There are people you would talk to today who are expecting another revival of the church. They expect here in this modern time for us to have another revival. I doubt it seriously because I don't think that the world is getting better. I think we're getting worse as we get closer to the end times. But if there is going to be growth in the church, it's going to be under persecution. If there is going to be a revival in the West, it will only be if we start suffering physical persecution. The church in China is growing by leaps and bounds. The church in Indonesia, the churches in Africa are growing fast. Why? Because they're under persecution. The church grows under persecution. And of course, that's not what Satan wants. So after, you know, Satan is pretty persistent, but he's not unintelligent. I think he finally realized after a couple hundred years, hey, you know, persecuting the church is actually having the opposite effect that I want. So I'm going to take a new tactic. Instead of compromise, instead of persecuting the church, 
I'm going to compromise with him. Satan went to his second favorite tool. If he can't intimidate you outright, his second tool is to compromise with you. And that's where we're going to get to in the next episode. We're going to talk about the compromising church, the church at Pergamum or Pergamus, depending on your Bible um, translation. This is the church that instead of being persecuted by the world, married the world. And that led to some irredeemable issues. And we'll talk about them next time. So thank you for watching watching, and thank you for listening. Uh, please uh, like this on, on, um, on YouTube so that more people can see it and it'll trend more and we'll get the word out. Please feel free to subscribe. I ask you very sincerely to please subscribe to Faith by Reason here on YouTube or on faithbyreason.net. Or you can also subscribe via Facebook you, or in here on, on the website. Just put your email address into that right navigation area and you will get notified when new episodes come up. And I will talk to you next week when we explore the church at Pergamum, the church that compromised with and married the world. <laughs>